So, uh, welcome everybody to the third talk <clears throat> on time. And this particular topic uh, tonight um, I call quieting time, as opposed to quiet time, quieting time. And uh, <clears throat> again, I um, offer the um, concern I might have that this, these kinds of uh, topics can get too abstract and um, we can lose uh, their meaning uh, as it implies in our life uh, by, uh, by becoming too remote. So um, if that happens, I'm not sure what to do about it, but we'll, we'll try to bring it back to more concrete terms. I was, uh, I was thinking, you know, a group of us have uh, agreed to come together for a couple of hours. And uh, how we start off that time is very interesting. We started off by being completely quiet together. And I can't, it's hard for me uh, to think, uh, except perhaps in a movie, theater or watching a play or something where a group of people would come together and actually be quiet uh, as, the, as the reason for them and the purpose for them to come together. Uh, and so I, we've defined the context of the situation to uh, make it okay to be quiet together. But uh, try to do that in a context in which this is not defined um, like at a party or something where you just decide you want to sit down and be quiet, you'll be uh, immediately um, thought of as uh, peculiar or something, some other adjective. Uh, and uh, we just, we really haven't learned much about um, quietude. And I think um, meditation itself uh, uh, has an awful lot to say about quietude. And I'm going to try to uh, sort of direct the, the topic of meditation and quietude into the topic of time. Because I, I think it's interesting how we fill our time. I think it's a very interesting question about uh, our strategies for filling time. We have a strategy in relationship to time like we have a strategy in relationship to relationships or work or food or any other commodity. And uh, it, it's useful to know what that strategy is. How is it that we fill time um, my own strategy is uh, sort of enduring it, waiting for it to, you know, sort of waiting for retirement all the time. Um, and uh, I'll put up with work uh, so that I can, I can uh, get through work and to what I really want to do, which is to do nothing. And um, 
I'll, I'll go to a party and I'll think, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do this, but what I really want to do is just go home and kind of do nothing, you see. So my strategy is to try to, try to endure uh, whatever I'm doing to, to get to be alone. And uh, another person's strategy may be, uh, I'm going to squeeze the gusto out of life. Like it doesn't get any better than this commercial. <laughs> so we just we keep trying to get it so that it's no better than this. It can't be better than this, right? So we can we can squeeze all the juices out of it and really really feel like we've lived. And that's a strategy for or using our time. So uh, what is your strategy? Do we know what our strategy is? And what difference has meditation made on your strategy, on your life? I was uh, speaking to a group of um, new uh, hospice staff today, and I was telling them hospice stories. And I was telling them that um, hospice work working with death and dying can really transform you if you open to the subject with some sort of depth. And one of the, one of the uh, uh, more confident new staff members uh, said, well, well, how's it changed you? <laughs> not supposed to ask that to the director. <laughs> and I said, uh, it's changed me completely. It's, you know, I'm just not the same person. But it was, I had to sort of stop and think about how it's actually changed me. I don't think in terms of that. So how's meditation? How is the ability or the willingness to, to slow down, to bring some quietude in your life, changed your relationship to time? Has it at all? And if it hasn't, what are we expecting it to do? What, what's the purpose of meditation? What, what's, what difference has uh, getting old made to you? Aging. How are we different now than we were when we were young? It's a different way to say that same question. Again, um, a friend was telling me about uh, one of their son's friends who uh, 19 committed suicide. And she was saying, you know, what you can't teach the young is that experience or time shows you that time changes and that whatever you think is fixed and is going to be with you at all times at 19 uh, is, is just simply uh, a passing movement when you're 40 or 50. How is, how is aging? changed ourselves? How do we relate to life differently, having aged, having been through some time? I don't know how many of you uh, have tuned into the Beatles uh, spectacular that's being shown uh, uh, now that uh, Channel 4 has 
brought together this uh, anthology of Beatles. Uh, and uh, it takes me right back to the time in the 60s when I was uh, graduated from college in 69, from high school in 65. And so I was right in the thick of that aging time there. Um, and I just remember the feelings of really feeling like this age, those 60s years, were going to lead somewhere. They had some meaning. They had, they were really, um, they were really going somewhere. They had a, they had a, a purpose to them. Something substantial was going to come out of them. And when I look back at those old scenes of the young girls and young boys, myself and the young Beatles, uh, I, I get very sad. I get, uh, I get very, I grieve because something didn't happen or something was missed there. Something, uh, some potential. You see, because it never meant anything other than what it was at the time. It was never leading anywhere. It was what it was in that moment, in that year, in that instance. And that we just thought, we just put so much purpose and substance behind it. Youth holds that kind of uh, sense of potential and I can do anything. But youth is just that. It's just, it's just that. It really doesn't lead anywhere. I mean, one of the interesting things that uh, being around uh, two young nieces is the number of times uh, I see people uh, come up to them and say, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? As if you know, what you are now isn't sufficient. You're on your way to becoming something and then you'll be sufficient. See, what do we, when we say, what do you want to be when you grow up? What are we saying <laughs> about the person now? And do we relate to the child as being complete and total person in the youth or that that child is on the way to developing into an adult and therefore I have to pump it full of all of this that I need it to be like in order to be a good adult. And that's what we try, that's what we try to do with our children. Rather than being that just what you are. I find that's an interesting question. And it, it's always been that way. Life has always been just what it is. It has never really led anywhere else. And the future are imagining that there'll be some substantial thing that happens out of this moment is just abstraction. It's just imagination. Well, something may come out of it or something may not come out of it but it has really nothing to do with anything. And But we give it so much value, so much substance, as if it only meant that. 
and means very little for what it is now. So the question of time having meaning beyond itself is a very interesting one. Does time have meaning beyond what is happening? What it, the immediate impact and significance? Or is it what we do now that has the whole meaning of time? Do we live our life as one of our strategies to do things for the future? Which doesn't mean I don't have to plan. It doesn't mean that I don't have to set aside some money for my retirement or whatever. But how do we relate to time? How do we fill it? You know, it's a very, I mean, somebody please show me time. You see? I mean, we can measure its passage, but where is it? Something that affects us to the extent it does should be observable. What happens when we actually try to observe it? What, ha act, what happens when we back ourselves up and we say, okay, Let's sit down here and look at our life differently in meditation. Let's see if there is something that is time. And when we do sit down, what do, what do we see? When we sit down and when we sit down and just sit. We certainly still feel the influences of time on us, don't we? We feel our mind being pushed to and fro, uh, being pressured. We feel impulses to get up. You know, this isn't working. All the different things that go on within us. We feel like um, the waves of a... back sloshing up against the sides of a container all the things that we've taken for granted when we sit down becomes the container and the waves just slosh. Another way to say it is, you know those little balls that you shake like that in the snow that, you know, you, we spend our whole life shaking it and then we sit down with it and it all just kind of falls kind of endlessly from the sky on us. It just keeps falling. Where's time in all of that? Where is time in the container where the waves are sloshing? Where is time in the sphere where the snow is dropping? Where is time in the pressures of thought, of anticipation, of comparison, of judgment, of criticism. See, that's just, that's just the snow. That's what we've made out of life. That's what we've, the context, that's the clay we've molded our lives to be. And then we've, but it's, I mean, where is it? What is it? It's, it just is just what it is. It's not even as substantial as the snow. 
And it's, we get a feeling for the fact that time is a, is a self-imposed creation. I think it's easy and often said among the meditators that time is thought. It's just thought. Thoughts about the past, thoughts about the future, thoughts about the present. It's just thought. And we can sit and in the context of our quietude we can actually observe that thought. The moving and swaying. It's just thought. But we're still generating time even as we observe the thought it seems to me. And we could say that it's just more subtlety of the mind in movement as it's swaying and swishing in the container. Because we're still thinking about it. Oh, this is just thought. I see. This is thought about the past. You see? You see how that, that brings me back, back to the snow, back inside the, the sphere, back into the movement of the waves. And that the purpose of time is to establish itself. Is to take the things of the senses and establish itself. To gain a foothold. To have a sense, a presence within that. And as we begin to meditate with more silence and more quietude, we begin to put more emphasis on the container, on the awareness, on the stillness itself, and less on the movements that are contained within that. And some people approach meditation by thinking that what they really want to do is get away from the noise of their mind, get away from that time pressure. And so they seek meditations out which will um, blank the mind, make the mind completely blank as some desirable state in relationship to time. And we try to eliminate thought it doesn't seem to work too well. At least it hasn't for me. I've never been able to understand how anybody can conceive that it could work for them either. Because it's still trying through time to control time. It's still trying to establish self, me, without thought in time. It's like a snowman trying to build itself. It's like one part of the mind deciding that the other part's the problem. It's like putting two mirrors together and the images in conflict. 
But it's so nice to be quiet for a while. It feels so nice not to have things go on with the same kind of pressure that it's very difficult to think that meditation isn't that. That it isn't the reason for meditation is to alleviate some of this grief that I'm feeling, some of this sadness of loss. Just give me a little space, a little distance, a little silence in relationship to it. See, what we're really seeking is a little bit of timelessness in relationship to time. We're seeking a little bit of quietude. And quietude is the stillness of thought, the stillness of the mind. And we call that space or relief. And so we, we intimate where we begin to sense that somehow stepping out of time is the ultimate form of peace, the peace that patheth all understanding, as Christ would say. We intimate that somehow our practice, our meditation can give that to me. We get a taste of rest through our meditation. But it's interesting because we come out of that and it's disturbing. The rest is both um, the rest is both a um, a very um, contented feeling of relaxation, but it's also there's a disturbing quality to it because we're not fixed. We have no fixed sense of ourself. And so when we wake up out of this, we say, well, that was a good meditation. Now I've got to go eat. Or I've got, I want to I play my stereo. Or I've got to turn on the t- TV, you see? Because that re-engages me. That gets me going back. That gets me very quickly back into the context of time. Because the meditation we have defined as being the appropriate place to be timeless. You know, I'll just let my mind go here. This, I just need some space here. See, this is the context. And, uh, but now, now's not the context anymore. Now I've got to get re-involved. I've got to go, and we do that by uh, involving the senses. The senses, looking for pleasure, and boom, we're right back in there. We have a definite place again. Because it's disconcerting not to have a foothold. Even though it's ultimately relieving even though it's ultimately soothing. It relieves us from the pressures of time. And we are desperately looking for relief of the pressures of our past. When we carry this around, this enormous burden of our past with us. And it's something, this is very important. We've approached this uh, theme in other ways um, at other times in here. But it's an enormously important subject, our relationship with our past. You You know, just imagine that we have this imaginary thing we call our past because Time is imaginary. It's not true now, is it? And 
it weighs so heavily on us that somehow we feel like we have to work out an imagination. <coughs> you know, it's like having a dream and being so convinced in the dream that somehow you have to work out the problems uh, that you felt like you got involved in in the dream. And this sense of past on us, all the things that we are, all, all the things that we've accumulated about ourselves and all the reasons that we are, the justifications we've given ourselves and all the memories associated with the pains that most of us have. Well, we have to work it out. But what are we working out? If we stand in front of a mirror and there's just the reflection of what we are right there, the mirror shows us the reflection of what we are, what does that reflection have to work out? What is there in that reflection that demands its involvement in working out? Does that reflection have a mother that's persecuted and abused it? Does that reflection have a father that assaulted the child? Does that reflection even have a child? We feel like there's something in us that is the past that we have to atone. But it's just what it is. It was youth. It was just what it was. And this moment is just what it is. The reflection says it all. I was in a retreat and somebody was using the retreat for all kinds of content to just abuse themselves and just we're just feeling enormous amount of shame and guilt <clears throat> and I I just took them over by the mirror in the bathroom and I just said just I just want you to stand there and look at that tell and look at what the reflection is not what you are what you think you are but what is the reflection what's contained in that It's a useful exercise just to get a sense. We are a reflection in the moment. We are just an expression in the moment. We really take ourselves much too seriously. Much too seriously. And we keep reasserting the, you know, I can't do this, you know. Sit for a half an hour. I can't, I can't sit for half an hour. Where's that I can't come from? Where's that come from? Pat, the past cries out for liberation. Time cries out for liberation. What can we offer time to liberate it? What can we offer it? We want to offer it something. We need to offer it something. We need to be able to do something for ourselves. How can we... We have to heal. 
Doesn't your heart want you to heal? Doesn't our heart really want us to be content? To come to absolute contentment? Think of that, absolute contentment. What can we offer time in order to heal? It's obvious, isn't it? Can we offer time, more time? It'll heal next year. <laughs> that seems a little bit weird, doesn't it? It's like trying to thaw snow in a freezer. Well, how about more judgment? <laughs> you laugh, but are you really finished with it? Or can we offer something that's radically different? Can we offer something that's so radically different that nothing can withstand it. The ultimate Superman. No kryptonite <laughs> will wear this one down. Maybe that which we can offer time is the timeless. How else could it be? What else can we offer noise but silence? What possible thing could we do to come to absolute contentment except be still? That's not the stillness. That's not the quietness of the absence of thought. There'll be many times in our meditation when there'll be the mind is full of thought and when the mind is very noisy. If we have to wait for those moments in which there's no thought to come to absolute contentment, we got our work cut out for us. But if we can be still, being still is a different level of quietude. Being still is not moving in relationship, is not substantiating like we did in the 60s, is not perpetuating the problem or pretending that the child is on their way to be an adult. It's not continuing to move the chamber of the waves so that they slosh up against the sides. It's letting the snow drift completely down into complete stillness, like right after a snowfall. 
on a crisp winter night. That's the kind of stillness. There's no movement, but there may be thought. To be completely still. How can time stand up to stillness? But most of us choose the movement because the stillness demands much more from us than the movement. The stillness demands everything. And all we have to do when we move is to suffer a little bit or a lot. And I would rather suffer a little bit and be who I am than be still and not know myself. It's like that uh, picture of the child in the New York Times that uh, was a three-year-old child, four-year-old maybe, uh, whose mother turned, it was Minnesota winter. The mother sent the four-year-old outside without any clothes on in the depth of 28, minus 28 degrees. And uh, the child was uh, saved by a passerby in a car or something. And the mother was brought to trial for uh, trying to freeze his, her son. And uh, of course, the court took the child away from the mother. And the picture uh, was the child reaching for the mother as the child was being led out of the court reaching, crying out for his mother because he would rather go with something that was known even if it had the tragedy of the suffering rather than the uncertainty of being taken away into something he didn't know what he was going to, where he was going to be. And that, that's our human predicament. And that's the only reason it seems that this spiritual journey takes so damn long, is that we refuse to give up our suffering. We think, we project, we use time to decide that where our spiritual journey must be taking us. And we build that image of being nobody as being so fearful and terrifying that we'll go way around Robin Hood's barn before we'll get to the goalpost. Anywhere. I know it's that way, but I'm heading back that way. We'll play all kinds of games with ourselves because we think we know what it means to be nobody. We think we know what it means to be silent. We think we know what it means to be still. And that scares us. And it's the idea of the goal. Because none of us know what the goal is. If you knew what the goal was, it would be useless. As soon as we've substantiated something, we've eliminated it as being the real goal of spirituality. 
And so we use time. You see, it's the whole thing. It's just mirror images back and forth. It's very interesting. Very interesting. You run up to the mirror and you go, wow! And then the person gets very frightened of his image and turns away from the mirror, runs around, goes all the way back, comes back up to the mirror, does another face. <laughs> back it runs. <laughs> Just to be still. It's uh, said that um, when the um, Buddha saw how easy it really was, uh, he just smiled. And then he, it said that he looked out across the Buddha fields, across all beings, off, across all lives. And he saw how few people were ready to just smile. And how many people really were much more interested in perpetuating the problem than solving it. And it's okay. We're all here together, kind of bathing ourselves in the slosh. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all right. It has its fun moments. I mean, this is kind of fun, hanging out together. <laughs> <laughs> but not to forget, not to forget the stillness, not to forget the silence of where meditation takes us, the silence that can't contain time or can't be contained by time, the stillness that is beyond substantiality, beyond youth, beyond movement, beyond becoming, beyond, beyond. And then it's ultimately in that complete repose, complete ret contentment, in the complete stillness the true happiness lies. Could we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.